I think you're the first identified member of a new species of humans. In this episode, we talk about Anya, a science fiction movie with a plot that could happen today, rather than in a far future. It all starts with a couple in New York that has difficulty having a baby. The groom is a member of the novel people who keep to themselves, mostly because they think there is a curse that prohibits them from having children with anyone but other members of the community. The couple brings in a geneticist to find out why they are having problems procreating. And this is where the story becomes interesting. My guests today are the creators of Anya, and we had a great conversation. We actually talked for more than 90 minutes, and I found the conversation to be quite enjoyable. If you are a supporter of Science for Progress on Patreon, you can listen to the full conversation on www.patreon.com slash progress as a thank you. If you are not a supporter yet, you have another reason to consider joining now. A summary of this episode and links to the movie Anya can be found on our website www.scienceforprogress.eu. By the way, this episode was not sponsored. I am your host Dennis Eckmeyer and you are listening to episode 38 of the Science for Societal Progress podcast. My name is Carolina Taylor and I'm an anthropologist and filmmaker. I'm the writer and producer of Anya. I have a PhD in applied cultural anthropology. My background is in kind of a mixed social science interdisciplinary approach to questions related to natural resource management, uh, migration, conservation. And I've worked about 20 years in, in Latin America, in Chile, Honduras, um, Ecuador, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Colombia. And wow. yeah. <laughs> So it's been wonderful. Um, so most of my field work has been really working with park rangers or farmers, uh, migrants, and looking at questions of how people conserve water, how they conserve land, um, how they do that whenever their families are stretched across transnational borders. So my dissertation research was on transnational families from Honduras. So I spent a lot of time in Honduras and then with Hon selected some family members and then families and then spent time with all of their family members in the U.S. and was trying to understand how ideas, money, different resources flow across borders in these families and how that affects their land use practices and water use practices. And I'm Jacob Akira Okada, and I wrote and directed Anya. Uh, I guess you would call me like a journeyman filmmaker. So I, uh, I started off in documentary Like, uh, I shot a documentary in film school, and uh, it took three years of uh, just myself shooting. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, while I was a student and making my thesis, uh, and that uh, three years of production was condensed, the story was condensed into maybe 30 minutes, 30 minutes of storytelling. And so I became a camera, like a cinema verite uh, documentary cameraman, camera operator. Oh. And so I shot uh, documentaries for television and, um, you know, lots and lots of projects. And that eventually led me into editing as well. So I had this uh, foundation in documentary and the stories ranged from, you know, uh, a documentary about 
uh, the Khmer Rouge, someone who was whose parents survived the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, you know, revisiting the path they took to survive to, you know, my thesis was about a black gay artist in New York City who was dying of AIDS and, you know, a portrait of someone at that time in 2000, 2001 in New York City and how the healthcare system was affecting this person's quality of life. There was no science in any of this, but behind all of those experiences, I was always really like a sci-fi nerd, someone who really loves science fiction. And I was just, it was just always an unexplored passion. And also I was interested in narrative film making. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, decided at one point after, you know, 10 years of working in documentary to, in New York to move to Los Angeles where, you know, everything is more narrative based, you know, whether it's television or film. And so that's kind of how I started to make the transition into outside of documentary. Mm -hmm. But you plan on continuing with more narrative movies rather than documentaries? But Mm -hmm. it's ultimately less time consuming. So the plan was to do more narrative. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But that really reminds me of doing science, right? You work for years and years, and then you have like a five page PDF. And that's, that's the outcome, right? And it's a very, very tiny thing. And very few people will read it. Jacob's being a little modest too. his bookshelf is filled with um, books that he's picked up picked up along the way for medicine, physics, math, like he just likes it and just and reads it in the background. And our first project together was actually a documentary about a mathematician and artist who worked for um, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Oh, and cool. so for that, we interviewed a lot of astrophysicists and fi- tried to find ways to communicate complex mathematical concepts and orbital dynamics concepts to a general audience. Now, the story of Anya is very much based on genetics. I have like a basic genetics background just for understanding human human evolution mostly and questions of questions around race and divert, biological diversity and things like that. But the Anya was an experience in taking a deeper dive into genetics and really getting to work with a lot of geneticists, genetic counselors, um, different people in the genetics field. Like we've talked to... Um, to university research scientists and also lab scientists and salespeople and like gotten kind of an overview of the field and how it's interfacing with the public and lawmakers right now. So that was kind of an application of anthropological research to the field of genetics for the sake of Anya. Let's hear what Anya is about. Anya is a grounded science fiction love story. It's about a couple who are having trouble having a baby and are very confused and at wit's ends. And they decide to turn to a geneticist from the woman's past for to see if he might be able to help them have a child. And he kind of reluctantly agrees to get involved because he's not a clinical geneticist. He's not um, no fertility expert. He actually works with ancient DNA, with Neanderthal DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is for a friend and somebody he cares about. So he decides to just run a couple samples and see if there's anything he can see. And it's that launches a process of discovery of something really unique in, their, in the guy's genome and the young groom's genome 
that makes him think that maybe this guy and his entire enclave community um, that lives in in Queens, New York, just like a neighborhood of New York, it, are actually a different species of humans. Just removed from the rest of the human um, population by a single gene, and mm-hmm. but uh, would make they're unable to reproduce with the rest of the humans. And they've had, and you discover through the course of the film that there's an entire culture and language that's built up around this um, fluke of biological diversity, and the characters kind of encounter that and have to figure out how far to go to pursue this discovery and whether or not to try to overcome the, disco- the this biological difference through gene editing or not. So that's kind of the story arc. Yeah, and it touches on, on a lot of different issues, right? And different aspects of diversity and um, gene genetics, etc. One thing I particularly liked when watching the press release was that these looming social conflicts didn't escalate. One thing that I noticed about sci-fi movies that feature scientists, that for the sake of escalation of the story, scientists do really things that I so no no scientists would I know would would do, like they think very little <laughs> for being scientists <laughs> about about the the consequences of their actions. That's often part of the story that makes it like big, like when the scientist does something that uh, he or she shouldn't do. Uh, that's where it becomes interesting often, um, because then bad things happen and you have like big social problems you have maybe a war or something um, conflict yeah yeah you don't let the movie get to that point of escalation i feel it's like it's looming and then it stops there why why did you make this decision to to have the scientist say no before this happens before this escalates i will stop it because while i was watching it I felt like the the storytelling would usually go into the escalation at that point. Well, one of the things that w- that interested us about telling this story, um, just through our research, talking to scientists, uh, was just how how messy uh, or unpredictable discoveries are. A scientist uh, can stumble upon something that's outside their purview, but it's but they still recognize that it's what they what they discovered is interesting and worth pursuing, mm-hmm. and so we thought it would be interesting to have someone who is not involved with dealing with you know living humans, <laughs> but you know who recognizes like oh this is a very significant potentially significant discovery, but there are all sorts of problems with 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 it because it was an accident it was it was not part of a, a controlled experiment mm-hmm. and so he he has to deal with you know human beings who want something from him and so he's trying to be very thoughtful about what is moral what is, you know how how can he best help these people but he also is a human himself who has his own wants and desires and professional pressures mm-hmm. and so we tried to keep it in the realm of realistic in the sense of, well, this person uh, it belongs to an institution. And if he breaks the rules of the institution, then he'll be an outcast effectively. Mm-hmm. And so in real life, you know, most people would 
you know, shy away from breaking those rules. But he's a bit, uh, Seymour, the scientist, is a bit of a, already a bit of an outcast. You know, he's a minority within the field. He's, he, I, we tried to portray him as a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say manic, but someone who's creative. Some people like to push boundaries and, you know, they, they're messy. He's a mm-hmm. messy scientist. <laughs> and, and so, you know, we, tr- we wanted to try to be realistic, uh, try to portray based on the, the, the scientists that we have uh, met and researched, you know, the kind of the messiness of discovery. And so mm-hmm. that's why we, you know, didn't escalate the story in kind of a Hollywood fashion. Jacob brings up a good point that we purposely made the running of the initial samples an accident because very few scientists would go outside of their institutional review boards and ethics institutions to actually run somebody's DNA without the proper procedure, without full consent, because mm-hmm. um, it just opens up a can of worms that genetic testing opens up. I mean, it's just... you. Did they fully consent to having it done? Did their potential children, did their family members? There's just a whole lot of stuff going on there, let alone Seymour's institutional presence. Um, so in the film, it's actually the his graduate student who runs them kind of to get just to do her job very thoroughly. Mm-hmm. It's like a very easy mistake, but she just is doing her job. Um, and so there's a breakdown of communication. Those baggies from my pocket. You ran those with Rosalind's human Neanderthal comparisons, right? Uh, I wasn't supposed to. Shit. Look. Oh, weird. Cool, right? Wait, am I not in trouble? But when I've done Q&As for the film with geneticists, there's a real split in the room as to how many people think Seymour's acting um, realistically and how many people think he's not. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's I kind of leave that up for your viewers to decide. Like, does Even though we did this in a very constrained way, does Seymour actually go too far just in the space of what you see in the movie? Um, so and there's a couple points, like does he go too far in testing Livia Marco's DNA, the couple's DNA? Does he go too far in collecting samples from Marco's family and neighbors and such? Does he go too far in how he communicates the information back? Is it too far in terms of like the way they talk about pursuing or not pursuing gene editing? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, a, I think, up to the viewer to decide where they land on how realistic that is or how um, appropriate it is. But I think you're going to find a divide there. Mm-hmm. So the story is, at its core, about a couple that wants a baby but can't have one because of one specific mutation. Seymour, the geneticist, brings up genetic engineering as a possible solution, not only for his friends, but also the rest of the novel people. We have the technology to edit people's genes. That part's pretty straightforward, but it's only been used in China. <laughs> that was written before. <laughs> we wrote that in 2016 or 2017 and filmed it in 2017. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was predicted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, yeah, I think we started writing in 2014, actually. So. Yeah, I don't remember when the line appeared. I mean, we So we worked very closely with um, the Wu Lab and Personal Genetics Education Project at Harvard Medical School. Mm-hmm. 
And they afforded us um, the ability to just observe, participate and observe in their lab life a bit and in um, symposia, congressional briefings. So we got to hang out around geneticists and people in the field, ethicists as well, and get a feeling for what was going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the line crept in because we were aware that people were getting very close to being able to um, use CRISPR to modify sperm and egg cells and actually create a, a, a new human embryo. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, so that must've been in our heads when we wrote the lines, but, um, yeah, that, that happened way before the news. So we were actually, the film was completely finished. We were you know, paying out music rights and, and wrap, putting the bow tie on it when the news about, um, the, the Chinese CRISPR twins came about. This proposal, however, has far reaching implications. And I think it's, I think the relevant point here is actually the question of, do we value genetic diversity enough to try to preserve the narwhal, the narwhals, um, this fictional group in our story, to preserve their genetic diversity, even if it's just the ultra-conserved elements on a single gene that are mutated? Like, is that something that we need to worry about? Or do does it make more sense for them to just allow them to reproduce with Homo sapiens sapiens and and just become part of the genetic pool over time through through gene mm-hmm. editing, and that's one of the things you see the the scientists struggle with is like do, if I do do gene editing, do I modify it so that the the new child is Homo sapiens sapiens or is it Homo narvalensis sapiens? Like, do we protect the population, this vulnerable population, or do we um, allow this population to integrate into the the larger species? Mm-hmm. What's, what's gained, what's lost, what unintended consequences might there be? If you have become curious about Anya and would like to watch it, it's on pre-order on Apple iTunes and it will be available for download starting November 26th on Amazon, Apple, Google Play, Vimeo and Hulu. And you can buy it on DVD. And there are screenings. For example, at the Sci-Fi Film Fest in Berlin in Germany, November 30th. Kariana will also be there to speak at a panel. How did the novel come to be in the first place? Our backstory is very bland. It's just an isolated island in the Caribbean that was separate for 10,000, 15,000 years. Mm-hmm. And since like the beginning of population moving into the, the Americas, and they have a gene that gets shared about over time and... and allows them to be genetically isolated. There wouldn't have been that much contact with other groups, mm-hmm. but and not in mass. So maybe it would have gone unnoticed that they'd separated at first. Um, but then by the time the Spanish arrive in the 1500s, they would discover that the Spanish, as they're raping and pillaging and you know, colonizing, basically, mm-hmm. that there's no no offspring with the local Narval population. Mm-hmm. And that would lead to some serious concern and confusion, and they would be ostracized as being very different. Like, what's going on? Why can't... Are they witches? Are they this? Are they that? Like, So the Narval would have found themselves as being labeled as very, very different and dangerous, perhaps. And so they would have had to um, close ranks and protect themselves. And I think different things happen at that point. So they come up with this kind of like 
cultural explanation for the biological phenomenon, which is that um, they're cursed. So they're cursed to never have children if they leave their community. Mm -hmm. And over... Over time, they also develop other practices like early childhood engagements so that you can kind of make sure that you're not intermarrying too much within the same family. So you're actually mixing up the um, the genetic diversity within the narval population. So you see that in the film that they have these early childhood engagements mm-hmm. um, with the expectation that they'll get married at, when they come of age. And you know those, those are the two major adaptations you see for the... Uh, and the third is the language. Um, so in order to kind of hide in plain sight along the Span- alongside the Spanish, they develop this language that's a perversion of Spanish, like they use opposite words. Um, and there's a bunch, a friend of mine is from Puerto Rico and helped me come up with the rules for it. And you can read that on onyamovie.com. But there's a whole bunch of different like tweaks that they did to the language so that they can walk around in amongst Spanish speakers and not be immediately called out as different, but still have their own cultural identity. Mm-hmm. And all of that is to kind of, as a response to having this extreme genetic diversity. I was just going to say, so a Spanish speaker mm. watching the movie, uh, when they when characters speak in the Narval language, a Spanish speaker would probably laugh because it's just complete gibberish yeah. <laughs> what they're saying. And why would they leave their island to end up in New York City? All this, all the same reasons why people today migrate or become refugees, whether it's you know, war or extreme poverty, um, seeking better opportunity, sense of adventure. I'm sure there are there are people who still live on Narval Island who didn't leave because they're just not as adventurous as the people who did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine. Um, I imagine that the Narval left Narval Island just very similarly to the Hondurans that I worked with left a Honduran village. So I think they've probably been there for less than 50 years, probably 30, 40. And just some members of the community in Narval Island left to seek economic opportunity. And um, they landed in Long Island, New York and Queens, New York, which um, the community where we filmed is like the most diverse neighborhood in the entire United States. And it's a great place to hide in plain sight because they can pass as Colombian or Mexican, Venezuelan, and most people wouldn't notice that they were different. So they might have had Colombian friends, and so the first ones follow them, and then then they send home for their their wives or their kids or their mothers, and it just you end up having um, this kind of pool and end up with the eventually daughter community in in New York, just like happens with so many other groups. Mm-hmm. Want some help? Sure. I have no idea what I went through to get these. You mean IRV? Boss, these are people, not Neanderthal bones. It's a bit of a cheat. I was going to apply and treat them as pre-existing data. You'd still need informed consent to publish. At least that's what they tell us in legal and ethical. They're informed. I know. I kind of promised to edit their genes. No. I had no choice. They could care less about their place on the hominid family tree. All they wanted is to have kids with the people they love. 
Seymour has gone and um, collected samples of DNA from Marco's family, friends, neighbors, and is trying to see if others share the same variant, ultra-conserved elements, the same variant gene that Marco has, and if in, if indeed he can consider that to be a different species of humans. Because, for I mean, he's an evolutionary geneticist. He's very interested in the big macro picture, like, did I just find another species of humans living among us? Like, we know that that's happened in the past. Is that happening now as well? So that's that's his excitement. And he gets kind of drugged by it a little bit and drugged by um, this woman reappearing in his life who was so important to him. And so the scene that you're talking about is as he's processing the samples and of the multiple narval um, people, his research assistant who has been brought up through human genetics, like contemporary human genetics, and is used to working with people and has had classes like a legal and ethical class and has had to deal with institutional review boards and ethics boards. She's asking him, like, have you gone through the proper channels? Like, how could, you haven't had time for this. How could you possibly have gone through the proper channels? And he's basically saying, no, I haven't. But if it turns into something, I will. And I'm skirting a little bit here because it, when you start getting into bio, biomedical stuff, the, the constraints are much stronger. Yes. But for social science data, um, say I go and do some preliminary field work and interview people and just have a very casual, verbal, informed consent process. Like I, I tell them what I'm doing, I which is what Seymour does. Like I tell them what's up, tell them why I'm doing it ask if they're interested, what, do they want to talk to me? And they say, yes, that's all good. Um, and I get, I do the interview. That interview, I can't actually, I can't analyze and I can't publish off of it. I happen to be there, I'm taking advantage of the moment. Maybe there was a coup or an earthquake or something and I'm interviewing people after to get their effects. Before I can publish on that data, I would actually, or analyze it for that matter, I would have to go through in the U.S. an informed consent board at my university and um, apply, and I would apply to treat it as pre-existing data, right? Which is basically saying, I have this, now I'd like to do something with it. Is that allowed? What do I need to do to change? So that's what he's saying he's going to do. And like I, again, I don't know in the biomedical, like that might be completely shut down and the data would just have to be destroyed in real life probably um so that's one issue of like what he's doing with this data and then the second issue is he seymour and this is getting into spoilers a bit seymour bows into um the demands of his research participants basically to promise to edit their dna so that they can have children with um, non-Narval people. So we're, we're trying to show this researcher-participant dichotomy and showing that sometimes the participant actually has a fair amount of agency because they can deny, they can grant or deny the the sample request, the interview request. And in this case, they're denying it if he doesn't agree, uh, to. agree to help mm -hmm. them. So he agrees to help them in order to get their DNA. I think most scientists would have just shut it down mm -hmm. at that moment. Um, but for whatever reasons for driving Seymour, he doesn't. And then that's when the anthro when his grad student is calling him out on it. Like, how could you have agreed to edit their DNA? Like, this isn't something that you're skilled to do. This isn't something that you have approval for. Um, you're going to get fired. This research is never going to get published. You're not allowed. You're not going to be allowed to publish off of it. So it's 
Um, that conversation does a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> just for a tiny beat, but it's it's problematizing it that he's gone outside of his institution. Um, but what I'm finding through the the Q and A's and the screenings and such is that there are plenty of scientists who work outside of systems and as complicated as CRISPR is and as complicated as gene editing is and getting it right is in the near future, it's not going to be that hard to try this outside of a system of checks and balances. Mm -hmm. Coriana and Jacob don't want to spread their own opinions through the movie, but they want to start a conversation about the issues of genetic engineering in humans. But for this podcast, we did discuss this much more. Yeah, once people once people see the the broader public sees the potential to fix something yeah. or uh, or change something about me I don't like, they will agitate. There will be a, a demand for it, and there will there will be ethically dubious scientists or technicians mm -hmm. who will be willing to help them for a price. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... Or because they believe it's the right thing to do. I, right. On some of these panels I was on last week, I, um, really, really famous, wonderful labs are being approached to overcome genetic disease through CRISPR. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and we're not talking about... Always talking about the sperm and egg cell editing here. We're talking about, like, within the individual like overcoming Parkinson's or Huntington's. Mm -hmm. uh, but people are starting to ask, like, can I edit out the Huntington's in myself? Can I, and then people are starting to ask, can I edit it out so that I don't give it mm -hmm. to my children? Like those questions are being asked by patients right now. Mm -hmm. And some of the strongest push I think for gene editing in the country is from uh, patients with genetic um, heredi heritable diseases mm -hmm. So it's they're it, agitating. Yeah, and and can you blame them? Of course not. Of course not. But we're just trying to show that the pressures it isn't all about the scientists being super gung-ho at the edge of discovery. It's also about potential patients being super gung-ho at the possibility of overcoming something really serious and horrible mm -hmm. and um but how do you give consent for an entire species. Like in the film we show, trying to give consent just for the narwhal is impossible. Like Marco can't give consent for his mother. His mother can't give consent on behalf of the other narwhal people that come to her in her bookstore and that kind of community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not and, homogenous in their no. desire. And that community of people in the bookstore is only half of the community of narwhal that you see. And it doesn't seem like the ones banging on the car are going to be real interested in like being part of a consent process with them. So how do you get consent from those 20 or 30 people that we sell, show on screen, let alone the entire human species? Mm -hmm. So it's... I don't know. It's a it's a way to kind of raise these ethics questions, I suppose. Right. But would you need it? Wouldn't it be each person's personal decision? Would you need the consent of a whole species to do the editing? If I think that's the question. I think in terms of where our legal and ethical institutions and guidelines are right now. You legally only need the consent of the individual. But once you change genes for an entire 
um, genome. Like for you're changing the genes of people who don't yet exist. Like again, this is a spoiler, but if we assume that Anya is the genetically modified offspring of Libby and Marco, and there's room to decide whether that is the case or not, but if we assume that. Anya did not consent to having her genes edited. She did not consent to being made narval. She did not consent to being not made homo sapiens sapiens. And his mother didn't consent to that. And it's like our genes are more... Our genes have implications for more than just us. They also have implications for our families and for our offspring and for future generations. So... The question is, is whether or not our ethical procedures and guidelines should change to reflect that, or if it's enough to be just for the individuals that are consenting to the process. Would you want to alter yourself? No, I would not. I would not uh, alter myself. My understanding is that genes interact with each other in ways we don't quite understand. And the risk of unintended consequences is unacceptably high. And I think it's arrogant to believe that we have such control over something so complex. I think if I had the option, I would not do it. I'll let the rich, crazy people do it and see how they turn out. <laughs> I fall a little bit differently than Jacob, actually, in terms of the would I, wouldn't I change things. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have much problem with the idea of... Altering, I think it's somatic cells. So the cells mm -hmm. that are in my body that I don't pass on. Um, if I were to contract an illness, or not, if an an illness that I carry were to manifest, and it were possible to edit my genes so that it wouldn't kill me, mm -hmm. and it, the so the alternate is like death. Mm -hmm. I think I'd try it. I mean, I, and if I could afford it, because I think that's going to be real, the real big horizon here is I think this is these texts are going to be available, but they're going to be available to people who can afford them. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to create a whole new layer of haves and have nots in terms of access to genetic technologies and all the wonders that can come from them. I wouldn't modify my my germline as much mm -hmm. as I would like to. Um, I mean, I do carry some, I do carry something I don't want to give to a kid. I mm -hmm. haven't had kids because of it Oh, in part. Um, but I think the unintended consequences are too big for where we know what we know right now. Mm -hmm. um, and the, most of the geneticists I've talked to would say kind of the same thing that there's a lot of the technology is not quite there. It's possible to have unintended consequences. These CRISPR twins that I mentioned earlier, they, Those gene edit edits weren't perfect. I think it didn't work at all in one and the in the other. There's an unintended consequence, mm -hmm. and it's just there's like Jacob saying there's more that we don't know than what we know, and so within my own body, if I'm not passing it on, it ends with me. Mm -hmm. Fine, no big deal. <laughs> Then yeah, you know, so I die a little earlier or something, or have an unintended consequence. He's yeah. But passing it on to a child and that child's child and that child's child and on and on and on we go. I think the responsibility is too big. Don't forget, Anya will be available starting November 26th on Amazon, Apple, Google Play, Vimeo, Hulu and on DVD. So I'll be at Berlin Sci-Fi November 30th um, for a screening of Anya and Q&A. And then I'm also on a science and fiction panel afterwards. Cool.
Will you be anywhere else in Europe? I've had a couple feelers about the UK, um, but nothing concrete just yet. The best thing to do is to look at anyamovie.com for the list of screenings. But I think that we're going to keep having screenings for a while. And we're also available for hosted screenings if somebody wants to show the film in a group. It works really well with a panel after, like a panel of local scientists or ethicists who are interested in the topics. And you can kind mm -hmm. of adjust the panel to match what your local community is interested in. And we're available to participate in those too, but it doesn't. we don't have to be there for it to happen. The summary and further links to this episode you can find on our website, www.scienceforprogress.eu. This includes a link to the full conversation on Patreon, where you can listen to interesting stories from behind the scenes of filmmaking in Queens and more about what we all think about human genetic engineering. What do you think about this? Would you have your genes edited? Let me know in an email, info at scienceforprogress.eu or by tagging me on social media. I'm at SciForProgress on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. This has been very interesting. Thank you for listening. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having us. <laughs>